Jeremiah chapter 23. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king, and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, As the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this could easily be a, a scripture reading that we would read in the time of Advent. And the reason why is because it's an Old Testament prophecy concerning the nature and uh, means by which God was going to return his people from exile. If you've spent much time in this church, you have heard that theme uh, emphasized. And this really is a central theme of the coming season of Advent. Today is traditionally known as Christ the King Sunday. And this day in the calendar is the culmination of the calendar. Um, Advent is not the end of the year for Christians, it's the beginning of the year for Christians. And so our liturgical cycle that we've been on for three years has now reached its course. In the book of readings that we use during the holidays, uh, it, is a, it is set up in year A, B, and C, and we have now finished year C. And uh, so this is a wonderful time of reflection and and remembering all that God has done in forming us through worship. One of the things that's interesting to me about this passage is just how easily applicable it would be for an Advent uh, sermon or a Christ the King sermon. And the point of the day that Christ the King is, is set on, it's, it's supposed to be a day which we remember, reflect, and rejoice in the kingdom of Christ and his rule over everything. And so today we're going to look at, at Jeremiah's passage in the context of promising a return from exile, a return and an undoing of all that the people had done in their sin and in their, uh, in their abominations, 
and not only a return, but a causing to be birthed anew. That is, Jesus, uh, through his work, is not prophesied here only as just restoring them to their position, but now he's going to bring about a new dimension to the work of God among his people. So with that in mind, I want to look at four main elements of this passage. First, the plight of God's people, which actually is not in this passage necessarily. It's just alluded to a few times. We're going to look at some of the historical details behind what Jeremiah is speaking of in the 23rd chapter. After looking at their devastation that has come upon them, we're going to look at God's promise to judge the evil shepherds. And one of the things that I think is helpful in the renewing of your mind, you must allow the Holy Spirit and the scriptures and Christian teaching to deliver you from a deluded view of God. Many today in the world, outside of the church or even in the church, have a vision of God as a God who is just fluffy, marshmallowy acceptance. And he will receive everyone, no matter what they are, no matter who they are, without any sort of change or repentance or recovery. And I actually believe that this presents to us, uh, presents to us a, a misunderstanding of the justice of God. We looked last week at the holiness of God in relation to the sins and rebellion of his people, that they were constantly warring against his leading, and that led to a temporary judgment in the generation that died off in the wilderness. And how Moses, upon seeing the devastation that they brought upon themselves, is able to, by the Spirit of God, look forward in time to another, that is one namely Christ, who would not only consider the fear of God, uh, the, the wrath of God according to the fear of God, but he would also experience it on behalf of his people. The exact same dilemma is presented here. The people of God have sinned in this regard against God's way and God's means, and so God is right to judge the evil shepherds. One of the, one of the things I hope to bring out today is God's justice in the way that we understand justice, it's not merely punitive, it is not merely a punishment, it is also and always restorative. That is to say, he does not judge the evil shepherds and then allow evil shepherds to simply arise in their place. He judges the evil shepherds so that they would be dispossessed from their position of authority over the people of God as spiritual leaders and, and false teachers. And so I hope to highlight that, that God's justice is something that ought to be vindicated in your heart and mind. You should feel no problem in commending God's righteous judgments against evil to the people you're either evangelizing with or, or your brothers and sisters, or even how you approach when you read the scriptures and hear something that God has done and it bursts your bubble, so to speak. Don't let your flesh tell you who God is. Let the scriptures tell you who God is. God is not a God that we make in our image. God made us in his image. God is God. And so, um, but it, it is not just a doctrine that you have to receive begrudgingly. It is a doctrine that actually is wonderful and just and true. In fact, in, in the book of Revelation, at the culmination of God's dealings, which I believe were mostly taking place during the judgment of Jerusalem, uh, the people of God, the saints of God, praise God, saying his judgments are just, true, righteous altogether. And so this is very different from how we 
especially if you see pictures of Jesus, you know, floating around on the internet, or maybe you have them in your homes, and he's in a, a white robe, and his hair looks like he came right out of Woodstock, and he's, <laughs> he's proceeding to you in a golden beam of light. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is that and much more. In the book of Revelation chapter 1, he's got eyes filled with fire. I don't know about you, that's not a pleasant view of Christ. I, I don't want to encounter him should I be outside of his mercy. So anyway, we're going to look at God's judgments against the evil shepherds. These are religious leaders as well as political leaders who are leading the nation astray. And God bringing about a restoration of the line of David. That's really what this prophecy is all about. We're going to see how that is, is so vitally important. And then finally, we're going to look at the promise of salvation that God gives and the power of that salvation, how effectual God's salvation is. Uh, we do not come to Christ in order that God might be able to, hopingly, uh, if he is strong enough, save us. God is altogether powerful. He will not only not cast out anyone, who comes to him truly, but he also is able to save to the utmost, perfectly for those who call upon him. So we're going to look at the context of Jeremiah's prophecy here. In fact, for 22 chapters, Jeremiah has been receiving prophecies, being commissioned by God to speak against Israel and Judah, and he has uttered prophecies about the impending judgment coming against the city of Jerusalem. And so as he begins to issue these woes, which are from the mouth of God, uttered to Jeremiah, and then Jeremiah utters them forth to the people of God, he pronounces woes upon shepherds of Israel. Now, of course, God is not concerned with sheep here, to, to use a phrase from Paul. He is not talking about the fact that the people of God have bad actual sheep, you know, with wool who live in a uh, in a pasture. This is not the sort of shepherd that God is judging here. The shepherds are a people who are in charge of religious things and political things. These are the shepherds of a nation of shepherds. Perhaps you remember our discussion of God's people being identified with sheep and shepherds. All the way back in the garden before the people uh, Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. God made a covering, slaying a beast. Cain and Abel, Abel brings the choice of the flock. Uh, all the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of these men were shepherding men. When they go down to, Israel, uh, to Egypt, Joseph tells them to answer truthfully to Pharaoh, saying that they are a people of sheep. They're shepherding people. And so the people of God are sheep themselves. One of the things that's interesting in modern political discourse is this idea that, you know, the masses are these sheep. That's actually a term that people use, sheeple. And, and I am this enlightened one who's not like the masses. Uh, many people in, in their political theory think everybody else is the problem and I'm this pure person. But actually, God's people are sheep. You are a sheep. It is, it is right to receive your sheepness. It is okay to understand yourself as someone who needs to be taken care of. And in fact, just to make a real quick application before we go back to the history here, if you live like a lion and you are a sheep, you will get destroyed. Many people do not practically relate to pastoral care, pastoral and shepherd being the same word, 
they do not relate to pastoral care as if they need it. They only receive pastoral care once they're caught in a hole or caught in the fence or filled with brambles and thickets in their, uh, in their cloth, in their wool. And so it is right to receive your sheepness. Anyway, these evil kings, these false prophets, lead the people astray in promoting, tolerating, and uh, allowing and celebrating idolatry. When we look at the history of the people of Israel, over and over again, the first ones to go astray are often the kings. Now, God gives righteous rulers or evil rulers in a reflection or a judgment on the culture. He gave evil kings because the people had already turned aside. And yet, when the writers of the books of of the histories of the kings, first and second kings, first and second Samuel, first and second chronicles, often we see summary statements that this king multiplied evil greater than his fathers, or he was not like his fathers in remembering God, but turned aside to serve other gods and led the people astray in that same pattern of living. And so the people, these evil shepherds, are not to just be understood as religious leaders alone. Because in the kingdom of God, actually everyone is a religious and political leader. In the people of God, the way that God formed them, he gave a rule to the king. The king, upon taking his throne, was to make a personal copy of the scriptures. He was to make a personal copy of the scriptures, and that copy was to be approved of, to be tested by the priest. The priest was going to look at the copy that he himself wrote down and make sure nothing had been changed, nothing had been omitted, such that the king would rule a righteous people in a righteous manner. And so this is, this is a right understanding of the, fa- of the nature of representative government. It, of course, will have religious elements. There is no such thing as a secular person or a secular leader. Everyone is inescapably religious. Their charge, therefore, was to shepherd God's flock on his behalf. See, God was in charge of his flock. And in fact, these words that Jeremiah records and utters, he says that it's God's flock. And so they are not ministering of their own. It's not their own kingdom. It's really God's kingdom, and they're serving as vice regents or co-laborers with God. Instead of this, they multiply idols and fail to execute justice according to God's law. So these people are called shepherds and they are pronounced a woe against them. It, as we see here in this first verse, it is the sheep of God's pasture, not themselves. They are not in total charge. They are not in control. They cannot be laws unto themselves. They have to rule God's people in accordance with God's ways. At this point, when Jeremiah is writing in history, the kingdom has already been split in two. And in fact, at this point, Israel had already really been taken away into captivity, and she would never return, and Judah was about to go. And and so the, the idea here in the scriptures is the kingdom was given to the people, but it had been immediately divided. Israel had been taken away, and Judah was about to fall. And so at this point, we see God's judgment against the performance or the neglect of the duty based upon the shepherds. I think there's a very interesting and wonderful literary device here that God uses through Jeremiah's mouth. It says that because they were inattentive to the shepherding of God's people, God will pay attention to them. This is why I think it's important to learn 
the language of the scriptures. Look at this in in verse 2. You have scattered away my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you. See, See this undoing of what they've done? They have neglected the people of God. They have persecuted the people of God. They have led the people of God away. They have been shepherds off duty. They have been inattentive, and so God now will come and set things right. Verse 3, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold. See, this is not a precious and sweet promise of God unless we understand that he himself drove them from the land. He said that the land would vomit them out, and that's true. The land did vomit them out, but also it was God at work in that purging. God was at work sovereignly pushing the people out of the land, exiling them, giving the right judgment for their sins, iniquities, and abominations, as we've detailed multiple times that the people of God looked worse than the Egyptians, that they did sins worse than the Canaanites. They're sent into exile because of their own sin and rebellion, and yet God promises in the context of one part of the kingdom already being taken away and the other part about to fall, God promises there will be a return. The great philosopher 50 Cent said, sunny days wouldn't be good without the rain. This is why you have to learn the history of the scriptures. This is, this is why the promise of return from exile is only sweet if you know that you had, had been and were rightly in exile. See, Christmas means nothing unless you understand not only the people of God being in exile, but also the fact that all men were in exile from God's presence. This is what it means for Adam and Eve to be expelled from the garden. They face that first exile, and over and over again, the sin of God's people breeds more and more condemnation and alienation to God. And so when God promises that there will be an ec- a return from that exile, that often falls on deaf ears because we, we don't really even know anything about the history of God and God's people. And so God promises a return from exile, and this promise is not just sweet. Christmas is not just something that is a wonderful time where we have good feelings and give gifts to our friends and our neighbors. Christmas is a total surprise. Christmas should be a surprise if understood rightly. That's really what the purpose of Advent is. It's for us to go through a season of a number of weeks by which we remember and enter into the memory of the condition of God's people, that not only were they no longer expecting a savior, but they didn't deserve one in the first place. This is why the God of the scriptures must be a surprising God. He is a God that we cannot anticipate. Jesus said of those who are born of the spirit, they go where they wish. They're not able to be predicted. This is what it means for the people to return from exile. They had no right and it wasn't even on their radar. God's power is seen here that he undoes the people's evil. He undoes the evil perpetrated by the shepherds. He pays attention to the things that they have been neglectful over. And not only that, he removes them from their position in order to establish and put in place righteous shepherds. Where the evil shepherds had scattered the flock, God will cause them to return. And though the flock was destroyed, as we see in verse 1, it says that they were diminished and even destroyed, God will cause them to be fruitful and to multiply. 
It's hard to hear these words, be fruitful and multiply, and not immediately be reminded of the state of God's commission to Adam and Eve, that in the garden they were to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. So God not only restores the people from their exile, he puts them back in the land and then causes them to thrive. You see, the gospel is not just a clean slate. This was alluded to in the the earlier uh, portion today. The gospel is not just a wiping of the slate clean. Your sins are not just removed. That would be glorious in and of itself. But the the removal of sin is done unto the baptism in the Spirit, where God comes to take residence in your life and to, by his grace, transform you into the image of your Redeemer, just as you had borne the image of Adam. And so God is at work in restoring the people and bringing them back from exile, but it is not just a second chance. The gospel is not a second chance message. It is not you have messed up and Jesus will restore you and now you can do it on your own. It is not just getting to take the test over. God comes and establishes his people such that they are restored completely. He not only restores, but bring about, brings about a new season. He says, I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing. What a wonderful promise. If you have ever felt the weight of your own sinfulness, even after coming to Christ, the words, neither shall any be missing, is a sweet, savory promise. What that means is God's shepherds will be so led by God in his shepherding of the people that he will cause them to be taken care of. That, that is, God will establish these people in order to preserve his flock. Though Israel and Judah had generations of wayward leaders, God is going to establish a new type of shepherd. And those new types of shepherds, those new shepherds, are going to be remade in the image of the chief shepherd. These shepherds will preside over a time of peace and blessing for God's people. This is why it's, it's very important to understand when and how the promises of God are fulfilled. Because many people read passages such as this, and they say, well, neither shall any be missing. How could this be true? Lots of God's children are still out in the world. But it's not speaking about that. It's speaking about the restoration of the flock, the bringing together of those who are God's children. This is not a prophecy for some day far away. This is a prophecy for the people of God. God's promise to David was that he would raise up a son to him and establish his kingdom forever. That God himself would give a house to David And that house was not just a physical house, although he did have a place to live. That house was a lineage, a history. And David's sons, one of them would eventually inherit the promise that God gave to David. And yet, when we look at the history, after David's passing, things quickly go astray. Solomon himself is actually not even the first king that David thought would take up the throne. In fact, before David even leaves the office, there's a rebellion from one of his sons, Absalom. This is a foreshadowing. If you've ever seen a movie or read a book, foreshadowing is the most important thing to understand about how to read a book or watch a movie. 
The foreshadowing of Absalom is terrifying. Even when David was still alive, one of his sons rebelled against authority, rebelled against David's pattern. When we compare Absalom to David, it's a complete foil. David would not strike Saul so as to take the kingdom for himself, but Absalom tries to kill David. He actually steals all of his wives. I mean, the, the terror of the foreshadowing of Absalom as an indication of what the other kings will be like is it's heartbreaking if you understand how to read. Even in the days of David's righteousness and David's reign, he commits sins himself, which lead to rebellions and usurpations of power. And so it is no surprise when the kings who come after David uh, walk in the ways and patterns of Absalom. As soon as God gives the promise to David, uh, his son Solomon takes the throne uh, just a little bit after this in the history of God's people. And in the days of Solomon, the kingdom is divided. As soon as Solomon dies, because he did not establish a righteous heir, the kingdom begins to un- go uh, asunder. It's ripped apart. And the, some people go with one king and some people go with another. But the point is this, <clears throat> that, uh, that the kingdom is spoiled at the death of Solomon. So the question is, how will God fulfill his promise to David? David was told, you will never lack a man upon the throne, and that God would take one of David's sons and establish his kingdom forever. So as Israel has just been led away into exile, and as Jeremiah was then prophesying to Judah, where the capital was, Jerusalem, uh, he was prophesying to them in that day, the, the prior 22 chapters, where God is going to come and take away Jerusalem for the sins that she is committing. Now, if that sounds harsh, I would encourage you again, just like last week, read Ezekiel 1 through 9. See what they were doing in the tabernacle and in the temple. They were committing high idolatry in God's very temple itself. Ezekiel is shown a vision and he sees the chief priest and all the other priests in the courtyard of the temple and they're worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars in God's temple. And this is just one religious thing. All of the social justice issues are also named by Ezekiel as meriting God's judgment. And so the question is, how is God going to keep his promise to David if the country doesn't exist? The dilemma imposed upon us as readers of the scripture ought to cause us to wonder, what's going to happen? And in fact, if we read the history correctly, we will arrive at that same point I mentioned just a few minutes ago, complete hopelessness. There's no way that we can understand how God will bring about a change. There's no way at all. So the exile was brought because of the sins of David's children, not in spite of their righteousness. How can God keep his promise? It is in this spiritual condition of hopelessness that God declares that he will keep his promise. And again, this is sweet and wonderful and savory and a delight if we understand the darkness that precedes the promise. Not only will he cause the people to come back into the land, he will establish a king. This is all fulfilled in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and it's uh, not the establishing of a king, but a return from the land. And this prophecy, which Jeremiah uttered, was fulfilled initially 
and literally. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. The contrary to this is the description of all the other kings as not dwelling in righteousness, not executing justice, not dealing in mercy, but actually being tyrants and idolaters, accomplishing wars and taxing the people and leading them astray in false worship. And so God will restore the people and establish his king in his capital. So everything that comes out of David seems dead on arrival. And I think it's interesting that Jeremiah prophesies that God will do this for David, that he will do it in order to keep his promise. But this idea that God will do it for David has to be understood in at least two dimensions, that he will do it on David's behalf. That is, David had a responsibility to train up his children and was unable. And so God will establish a son, a righteous king for David. And he will also do it on David's behalf. That is, David had this charge and also David was unable to do it. He was morally unable to do it, and he was actually unable to do it through his neglect. So he does it on David's behalf and by God's own power. And so God establishes this king, a righteous branch, to come out of David. And the righteous branch, obviously, according to the scriptures, is Christ. But one of the things that I find interesting about this description, a righteous branch for David is also the understanding that Christ is referred to, as we'll see in our time in Advent, as the root of Jesse. And the root of Jesse is a term that describes David's father. So here's the analogy, or here's the imagery that the scriptures present us. Imagine a tree, and we have a tree that begins at the base, it's connected to the ground to a root system, and David is the trunk. And what the history of Israel shows is that every every bud, every branch, off of that trunk of David, each one of them is worthy of being cut off and thrown into the fire. Each one of them is a king that leads the people astray. Even the righteous kings who institute some reforms, they never even make it through one generation of righteous kingdom activity. They, some kings like Asa, Josiah, etc., some of them for a short time establish some sort of reform. But most of it does not last. And in fact, most of the kings take it much worse. They, they, they multiply the sins of their fathers, not repudiate them. And so David here is seen as a trunk. And God says, I will establish a righteous branch. But other prophets give another perspective and call Christ the root of Jesse, Jesse being the father of David. And so how do we understand this promise given to us that God will establish a righteous branch? We understand it being that Christ, being eternally existent and dwelling in the bosom of his father, was the spiritual source for all of David. And so although he is considered to be David's son, as Jesus argues from Psalm 110 in the Gospels, how does David call him Lord? He is not just the righteous branch, he's the root of Jesse, the one who came before David and even before David's father, Jesse. The salvation that's brought about by Jesus is so powerful, therefore, because not only is he a righteous king, but he himself is God, that he will cause the people to return and dwell in safety, and he will undo the division of God's people. I think this is so wonderful that God actually promises a, not only the return from exile, 
but a joining together of the divided kingdom. Look at this closely. It's, it's maybe hard to see, but look at verses six and seven. It says, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. What was happening at this time when Jeremiah was preaching? Already Israel was in exile and Judah was about to fall in the next few years. God promises through Jeremiah, I will cause them to dwell. It says that this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Uh, if we look at, ver- we'll look at verse seven in just a second. But the name being given to the people of God here is a name by which the people are also called. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. These were names given to God's people. And now a new name is presented that the Lord himself is our righteousness. You see, the names by which the tribes were named were the heads of the people. But now there is a new head of the people, one who has the name, the Lord is our righteousness. In the place of these names of Judah and Israel, God gives a new name. This new identity is based upon their corporate understanding of the righteousness of God. That is forsaking a righteousness which comes about by the law, forsaking the sins and the evils committed by their fathers, and following a new head of the people, Jesus Christ. This righteousness is an absolute distinctive of the gospel community. That is to say that Christians understand their identity as being found in one who was righteous on our behalf, namely Jesus Christ. That is exactly what Jeremiah is prophesying here in verse 6, that the Lord himself would be our righteousness. The salvation that is brought about by God in this passage is so complete, so powerful, that he says that this will actually go beyond anything that God has done before. I think this is, again, very helpful. As students of the scriptures, we often think that God's power was ultimately displayed and seen in the Exodus, and to to some degree it was. God executed 10 judgments against a powerful nation, destroying their economy, destroying their army, killing one uh, male from each household, radically diminishing and judging the evils of Egypt, not only for her idolatries, but also her persecution of God's people. And God completes a new work here, according to Jeremiah, such that the exodus won't even be a memory. This is speaking, of course, spiritually concerning the nature of the gospel. That is, the work that God will do through this righteous branch in causing the people to be returned from exile, causing the people to dwell in the land in safety, and causing the people to have a righteous king, being a righteous king himself, it will make the exodus a distant, forgetful memory. That is how great the glory of Christ is in executing his office, how perfect and how wonderful his administration of his role is. It is wonderful, it is perfect, it is without comparison, and it will make everything else that God has done seem like nothing at all. Verse seven, it says, therefore behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord who lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but rather they will say, as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country, that is Babylon, and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. This is the promise that God gives. And this is initially fulfilled 
at the return from exile. Remember, we talked about Ezra and Nehemiah. If you're unfamiliar with that history, just go read those books. God causes a small remnant to come out of Babylon and to enter the land. But when they go, it's important to understand, this is why the book is so helpful to understand the numbers who go with them, a very, very small minority of the group of of Israelites who had been led into exile actually go back. And this is why uh, reading the scriptures along the grain of the history is so important because this has a very important fulfillment in the future, as we'll see here in just a minute. But it's important to understand God's prophecies as being initially fulfilled in historical events and totally and finally fulfilled in Christ himself. There was an initial return to the land. There was a small amount of safety given to the people of God in in their time. Ezra and Nehemiah established the walls of the city and they establish a temple. They kind of repair some of the things which were ruined, but the repair is not final, nor is it full. And this repair is for a time appropriate, but it is not the finality. It's not the culmination of God's prophecy to his people. The promise is only initially fulfilled and it is finally fulfilled in the great ingathering that takes place at Pentecost. During the day of Pentecost, at the very opening scene, the writer Luke uh, records the events of the day so as to present something that is wonderful and is glorious, that God had caused all the people who were Jews throughout the world, and by world they mean the geographic region, the cultural world of their day. Uh, There was no one visiting from Antarctica or South America or North America. That does not mean the Bible's lying to you. It just means that the word world is slightly different than what you understand it to mean. That throughout the entire world, there were men from every tribe, tongue, and nation who had come into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate that feast. Um, and, And so what this is indicating is that there were Jews who lived in all of these Uh, all of these countries, and God totally fulfills his promise that through the work of this righteous branch, he will cause all of God's people to come back to the land and dwell in safety, and none of them shall be missing. This was ultimately fulfilled at the day of Pentecost and tells us about the nature of God's power so as to cause his people to come together, to be gathered together, and to be made anew as a new people dwelling in the land. Of course, God draws his remnant back to him and establishes them in the land again, but now the land has expanded to include the whole world. This verse again was alluded to during the Sunday school hour. Jesus says that the meek inherit not the land of Jerusalem, not the land of Israel. The meek don't inherit Ohio. (laughs) The meek inherit the world. You see, so many Christians think that our our cause is just simply doomed. They look at, I I saw an interesting graph and some theologians that I love were all up in arms and they were so, they were beside themselves because the graph was, and I don't really care to to discuss the politic, uh, politic events of the last few weeks, but the thing that was presented in this map was just how young people voted in the last election. And they were, you know, beside themselves saying, oh, we're doomed in a generation. America may be doomed in a generation. We certainly deserve it. I don't think we are doomed. I don't think that. But uh, 
it wouldn't be out of God's normal ways of dealing with nations should we encounter times of war and distress. But they kind of looked at that map and, and considered that the cause of Christianity was basically done in this country because so many overwhelmingly voted for Hillary Clinton in this map. You know, the map was showing how young people 18 to 30 voted versus the rest of the country. And I just have to say that that is ultimately short-sighted. That God is doing a work of renewal in all the countries of the world. God may, from time to time, as he has right to do, judge particular nations, whether or not they are in accordance with God's law. And it would be right for God to judge our country in that way. However, that does not mean Christianity is doomed. When you look at the history of the world in 500-year segments, which I think is the appropriate scope of historical analysis, every 500 years there are some amazing things that happen in the people of God. And if you look at the progressive nature of the gospel taking effect throughout countries, throughout time, we live at an amazing time of gospel understanding, of, of gospel resources, of scriptural translations, of the desire for witnessing. You know, the evangelical church has many problems, but one of the great aspects of the evangelical church is her heart for missions. There is nothing like that in the other branches of the church that I know of, the Catholics, the Orthodox, the Anglicans. They're all timidly or somewhat involved in evangelism, but by and large, the church in America has many good things about it. Uh, some of those are worth keeping. Some of those need reformed. But nevertheless, the cause for Christianity is not doom and gloom. And in fact, if you, if you subscribe to a vision of the future in which everything gets worse, what I would ask you to do is reconcile that with where you're living today compared to the first Easter. What we experience now in the blessing of God is he is culminated or brought together a people, gathered her, given her wisdom by the Spirit, caused her to have wonderful theologians in the faith, pastors, doctors, preachers, etc. We have a wealth and a treasure of resources now that the first century church didn't have. And what, what I would encourage you to do is look toward the future and ask yourself, will God continue to multiply the work that he's done in the earth or will he pull his hand away and let it sort of spin out of control? I do not think that Christ will abdicate his position on the throne. That is why I think this p passage of scripture is a wonderful and righteous and encouraging portion of scripture to end the, calendar, the church calendar year with because it shows that Christ is not only the righteous branch who causes his people to return, but he causes them to dwell in safety and he causes them to have a land of their own. Look at the last part of verse 8. They shall dwell in their own land. This land, of course, as we've seen, is the whole world. Jesus says that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So that, that means he has all authority and he doesn't lack any authority. And he then commissions his disciples who pass that commissioning on to their spiritual sons and daughters to go into all the nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That means more than just dunking in water. That means to bring them into the life of God to baptize them, surround them with the name of God, and to teach them to observe everything that Christ commands. And when we consider what Christ commands, he always puts to force the, the interpretation of the law. That is, Christ did not come to just make everything easier 
that, that is, the understanding of the law being some, so, somehow diminished, he came to establish the law and to give his people shepherds who would be able to teach them in that way. Now, because of the work of God, his children don't live in just one land, but in all the earth. And this would be the message that I would give you today to re-examine your thoughts about the future. One of the people that I follow in terms of, uh, he's, he's a blogger who writes about you know, efficiency and not wasting time with your day and learning how to get organized and things like this. He one time gave a little reflection. He says, most people overestimate what they can do in a year, but they underestimate what they can do in a decade. And being that we're here at the end of the calendar year, and really we're kind of at the end of about 10 to, I don't know, 14 years. I can never remember how long this church has existed. What I would encourage you to do is to reflect upon the future upcoming year as we're going towards Thanksgiving, as we're going towards the end of the calendar year that we count time by. And I would encourage you to re-examine what you think is possible, what your life would contribute to the kingdom of God, what you would be able to do arming yourself with the truth of the gospel, taking Christ for yourself as not only the righteous branch who did something in history, but seeing yourself as intimately connected to his saving power. That if Christ is able to cause a nation of reprobates and idolaters to return from their own exile, then he surely can bring me into the promised land. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would give us vision. We pray that you would deliver us from pessimism, from listening to the adversary concerning the way that you are ruling and running the world. We pray that you would fill us with your gospel, that we would see ourselves as a living extension of your saving work of your people, and that coming alongside you, that we would learn to live like these shepherds that you give to your people. Lord, at the same time, I, I ask that you would cause us to love and cherish our position before you as sheep, that we would look to you, Christ, as the shepherd of our souls, as the administrator of our lives, as the one who directs and plans and and pushes us forth. We pray, God, that you would give us a deep and wonderful vision for what we might be able to, by your grace alone, through your empowering spirit, that we might be able to accomplish in the pursuit of your kingdom. We pray, Lord, that as we move to this season of Advent, that you would give us the grace of entering into a understanding of the plight of your people such that Christmas would be sweet for us. We ask these things for your glory and your kingdom. Amen.